0: the history of two generations of crime the drama of absolute power and the men who violate it the godfather part two what is your name don vito corleone and his son michael both had seen the ones they loved most cut down before their eyes both had killed as an act of vengeance both commanded the most powerful and merciless crime organization in the world is it true that in the year 1950 you devised the murder of the heads of the so-called five families in new york It's a complete falsehood. They would take any measures. I mean, you've won. You want to wipe everybody out? I don't feel I have to wipe everybody out, Tom. Just my enemies. Make any arrangement. Michael, we're bigger than U.S. steel. Order any death. To protect the empire they controlled. The Godfather. And his heir. Both were men of ice, and both were targets. Please stop. Please, stop. please stay inside. Keep them alive. We'll try. Marco, alive! The Godfather Part Two is Sicily in 1921. Mm and Nevada in 1958. It is revolution in Havana and rub in New York. It is manipulation. It would be like trying to kill the president. There's no way we can get to him. If anything in this life is certain, if history's taught us anything, it says you can kill anyone. It is murder. It is betrayal.
1: It was a son, a son,
0: and I had it killed because this must all
2: end. The
0: Godfather Part 2 is the final chapter in the violent history of the Corleone crime family. It is the motion picture masterpiece of the year.
2: Welcome back to Geek Channel 8 I'm Eric I'm Rosie
3: and I'm Johanna. Oh my gosh, this is terrible, but I'm still finishing up Boardwalk Empire, which is really kind of related to this you know our show today. Um, I'm finally into the last season and I have about six episodes left to, to watch. It's one of those shows I pick up and put back down again.
2: <laughs> Let's get into. The Godfather Part Two, a film that many people consider the best film ever made, which I said about the first one, which people did say at the time, and then this came out. Um, and, uh, you know, people like Martin Scorsese, who I guess was Coppola's choice to direct it before he agreed to direct it himself. You know, there are many other people who have said that this is a really great film, it's also one of the few films that the sequel may be better than the first film. You know, The Empire Strikes Back. And I guess the first two sequels that ever be inducted into the National Film Archive uh, was this and Bride of Frankenstein, also a really exceptional second film.
1: I did some research in into this as well because it was kind of a big deal that Coppola said that he wanted the title to have part two in it. And at the time it was the first film that explicitly said like two or part two in the title. There had been plenty of sequels before Son of Kong, Bride of Frankenstein, millions of Sherlock Holmes and James Bond films. So like the concept of having films that were connected to previous works was not new, but the idea of branding it in the title as this is a continuation of a previous story This was new for Godfather 2, beating out Jaws 2 by just a year. But uh, this, obviously, a much, much better example of that sequel. Anyway, continue.
2: It seems like just about everyone thinks this is better than the first. Everyone! I think he is, you know, someone I would be more likely to take acting advice from, because I think he's a better actor than he is a director, but... Gary Oldman, in an interview in 2014, said that he always tells students who want to be writers or directors that the first on their list of what to watch should be The Godfather Part II. Because, in terms of camera, lighting, cinematography, composition, production design, costume storytelling, writing, and acting, it's flawless. He said it's a masterclass in filmmaking from soup to nuts.
1: All roads lead to Gary Oldman. They do.
3: Here we go again.
2: (laughs) Last time we did this, Johanna was hoping I would talk more about the structure of the mob. And there's so much, but I'll give you a couple more highlights. We got to go back to the turn of the century, though. In the U.S., the mafia first got a foothold in New York City, in Italian neighborhoods, and then it slowly expanded outward. So it, it... eventually covered all of the city, and then eventually nationwide. But before it was called the Mafia, they were known in certain neighborhoods and in the press as the Black Hand, or the Black Hand Society. Like the Mafia itself, it wasn't a single organization. There were a lot of criminal gangs that used the same Black Hand tactics, which is a type of extortion racket, which I'll get into in a second. Black Hand groups included the Mafia, the Camorra, and other Italian criminal organizations dating back to 18th century Naples, or the Naples region. The Black Hand first started in New York City in the 1880s, and according to the Boston Globe, by 1900 it had spread to Boston, Chicago, Detroit, New Orleans, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Scranton. Around the turn of the century, it's estimated that as much as 90% of Italian immigrants and workmen in New York and other communities were threatened with extortion. 90%. Why was it called the Black Hand? This was because the means of extortion was by sending a letter to the target with a threat of injury or arson, kidnapping, or just murder. Unless they delivered a certain sum of money to a specific place and time. These letters were usually decorated with symbols like skulls, nooses, maybe a smoking gun, or a knife that was like dripping blood or, you know, stabbed through a heart. Then it was usually signed with a black hand, which was either a black handprint or uh, just a drawn hand that was meant to symbolize, like, a universally understood gesture of warning. According to author Mike Dash, who wrote The First Family, Terror, Extortion, and the Birth of the American Mafia, there was a New York Herald reporter that called these black hand letters, and that name stuck. This is a direct quote of Mike Dash's. It, quote, became synonymous with crime in Little Italy. The term Black Hand later became generalized in the press to be a single organized crime conspiracy called the Black Hand Society, which probably didn't actually exist. When the Mafia eventually does come about, there's a structure to it that we talked a little bit about last time. I want to go into more detail. At the top, you have the Don or the Godfather or the Boss. The way the Boss is chosen, he's voted on by the Capos. We'll get to them in a second. Sometimes there's a front boss and a street boss. The front boss is just a figurehead. And the street boss is the acting boss that's like actually doing the work. This is sort of a distraction technique so that the feds or whoever's monitoring law enforcement is like watching the front boss, who's the face of the organization, when actually the street boss is doing all the giving the orders and all that. Okay, under the boss, you have the underboss, sometimes called the Capo bastone or Bostoni. Once again, we're going to mutilate Italian words on this show. <laughs> it's just what we do. We mutilate every language, including English. But uh, I think it's pronounced Capo bastone. The underboss is chosen by the boss. Think of him kind of like the vice president. If something happens to the boss, he's there to take over until an election can be held to choose the new boss. And he breaks tie votes. So he normally doesn't vote on who's going to be the boss unless there's a tie. That's in theory how it's supposed to work. Now we know oftentimes there's like an internal power struggle and the underboss takes over. Then there's the conciliary. This is a counselor to the boss or an ambassador for the boss. This position's unique in the entire mafia because he's the only one who can disagree with the boss. It comes from the Latin conciliarius, uh, which means like advisor, and that term is still used for you know local city council type things in Italy and Switzerland and that region. According to the autobiography by Joe Bananas, Joseph Banano. According to his description, the conciliary acts as kind of like a union spokesman for the soldiers. So someone that can represent the feelings and the interests of the people at the bottom of the hierarchy. So those three, boss, underboss, and conciliary, are the only ones who can induct new members into the mafia. Everybody else has to come in by way of their approval. Okay, Underneath the underboss are capos, which are, which is short for capo regime. Uh, again, regime. I'm not sure, um, but it's informally called a captain, and they have a crew of soldiers, and they are kind of like a general manager of a business. So they're the ones that get the orders from the boss from the underboss. Sorry. And then they pass that on to their soldiers. They have a lot of power. They own their own little mini family. Like their soldiers are their own gang. And a lot of times these capos might not even know who all the other capos are or whatever. They may have just a specific territory that they're in charge of or a specific kind of crime they're in charge of. Working for the capo, the crew is made up of soldatos, which is literally soldiers. They are the worker bees. They do the murders, they do the intimidations, they run the rackets, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you hear about Picciotos. That is the young Soldatos. They do simple runner tasks, money collection and stuff like that. They're the new guys. Everyone else is an associate. Associates are people who work for the mob or work with the mob, but part of the mob. So they can be go-betweens, they can be drug mules, they can be small business owners, maybe they're the whoever they're laundering the money through, a union leader, something like that, but they're not actually in the mob. Okay, so how do you get into the mob? You can be recommended by anyone who's in. Even soldiers can recommend when the books are open. <laughs> the books are open is when the mob is taking new recruits. When the books are closed, they aren't. And it goes through periods, long periods of time, like 20 years where it'll be cl- the books will be closed before they induct new people in. The induction itself, there's a ton of widely varying accounts, but it usually involves some kind of ritual where the person who's going to become a made man, uh, that is a part of the family, is brought before the family and they have to A lot of times it involves pricking their finger with a needle or something, and sometimes even dropping that blood on a card of a saint, which is then set on fire and passed around. These induction ceremonies bear a lot of resemblance to rituals of secret societies during the Middle Ages, like Masonic lodges, witch covens, uh, the Knights of Malta had a ceremony similar to this and then there's elements of the Catholic baptism in some of these in fact, sometimes it's called being baptized into the mob and Then once you're in the mob, there are certain rules you have to follow and one is omerta This is the most important rule. Omerta is the code of silence You don't talk about stuff, you know, like first rule of fight club, right that that for the mob breaking the code of silence is punishable by death So that's the biggest one. There are other various rules. Generally, there's a rule about uh, women. Don't mess around with sisters, wives, or girlfriends unless you have honorable intentions. Drugs, you know, these rules change or may have changed at times, but they're supposed to abstain from using and selling drugs. At least we know that the mob at one time was against selling drugs and that changed. And introductions, the way people are introduced is very important. So people not in the mafia were introduced as a friend of ours. You know, this is a friend of ours, meaning they're not in the mob. They're an associate, right? They weren't allowed to say who they were in an introduction. This allowed plausible deniability. When introduced, members used to kiss. I don't know if you are familiar with this tradition, this like... You see it in in Europe and particularly Italy a lot, where men will kiss each other as a gesture of friendship. They used to do this, but they stopped doing it because law enforcement used it as a way to identify, oh, they're mobsters, right? Because the custom was not that common in the U.S. And then you can't kill another made man. So any hit or murder of a made man has to be approved by the family or else it can result in retaliatory hits and ultimately can result in a mob war. All right, and then there's a lot of unofficial customs that the mob follows. Traditionally, you had to be of Sicilian descent or Southern Italian descent. Northern Italians were usually in the Camorra, which is a different underworld organization. Later, it was extended to be males of full Italian descent and then later to males of half Italian descent through their father's lineage. You know, it's wiggled back and forth through the years, supposedly... Ever since Y2K, they have gone back to requiring both parents be of Italian descent. Supposedly, from what we know from mobsters who have broken omerta. It's also common for mafia members to have mistresses. The reasons are complicated not going to get into it right now, but oftentimes they have a wife and they have a mistress. Homosexuality is not allowed. You can be killed if they think you're gay in the mafia. Again, it's very like traditional, very Italian macho, very Catholic, you know, all these things. The last thing I wanted to mention, because it's specifically something we're going to talk about today, is that traditionally made men, members of the family, were not allowed to have mustaches. This goes back to the mustache Pete. Thing we talked about last time where the young Turks overthrew the older mustachioed mobsters that were often referred to as mustache peats. And then after that, mobsters are clean shaven. That's all I've got for the background of the mafia. It seems like a random collection of odds and ends. But when we get into things, the dots should start being connected.
1: Of course, my first question when looking at this was... How quickly did they really greenlight a sequel to the film since it was such a huge success? But, of course, the first film had a number of obstacles. Coppola was not in anyone's good graces, but the success of the film seems to have won the studio over. They sent him a free limousine as an incentive, saying, please, please, please come come do a sequel with us. And he initially didn't think it was necessary The first film ends on a pretty conclusive note for all the storylines. It has this awesome arc for Michael that feels pretty resolved by the end of the film. So by all accounts, Godfather could have stood alone. But he then got thinking about an idea for a story that he wanted to layer in with The Godfather, which was how cool would it be to make a film about a father and son at the same point in their lives and following those stories in parallel? That became the seed for Godfather Part 2. Some of it was he didn't want to just repeat the same story as the first film, which would have been easy to do. The themes of family and betrayal and the lust for power are all, of course, present in the second film. But if that had been all there was, it wouldn't have been as remarkable and as unique a film as it turned out to be. He had originally thought about bringing Brando back to play Vito Corleone, even as this younger character, convinced that Brando, acting God as he was, could have done anything, even playing someone 30 years younger than himself. But then he recalled the audition that Robert De Niro gave for the part of Sonny for the original 1972 film, and without going to Brando, he went to De Niro first. De Niro had a real project ahead of him trying to incorporate some aspect of Brando's performance into his own. And he ended up going to the Gulf and Western building, which is now Trump Tower, (laughs) and watching sequences of Brando's scenes from the first film and videotaping them on another camera. Which, this is just a funny thing, thinking back to... The 1970s. It's not like they had a VHS tape of The Godfather that he could just pop in. And so, having access to watch that earlier film and study it actually took a little bit of work. Uh, De Niro also went and lived in Sicily for three months and studied Italian. In the course of the film, I think there are only eight words that De Niro's character speaks in English, which his performance is so expressive. When I saw that I I almost didn't believe it because I felt like he perfectly communicates the character the whole time mostly through silence and looks but <laughs> but very effectively because Coppola was given almost complete control artistically the shoot for Godfather 2 was surprisingly smooth of course he did start with a 6 million dollar budget that somehow escalated to about 13 million uh by some accounts 15 million But it grossed $93 worldwide, so I don't think anyone was complaining. Film garnered a pile of awards, which was unique for a sequel at this time. It was the first film, as Eric mentioned, to win Best Picture as a sequel. And the only other film to this date that has done so is Return of the King.
2: We should mention the score also, that it got an Academy Award for score, even though it was a sequel, which they then banned until the Lord of the Rings trilogy when they unbanned that, right?
1: Yeah. Coppola also won Best Director, De Niro won Best Supporting Actor, and Pacino was snubbed for this performance, which was a surprise. He didn't have a fun time with this performance. he struggled a little bit with the first film. People were not very confident in his performance, but of course, His character takes a much darker turn in the sequel and supposedly he went into a very dark place in order to find some access to that character and he still doesn't really like to talk about it. So unfortunately, I don't have a lot of great trivia for you about how Al Pacino went into this character who turns out to be such a monster. But some some final notes are just pure geek awesomeness about the production of the film which is this was the last film to be shot on Technicolor using the imbibition dye transfer process I didn't know this was how Technicolor works but the reason why Technicolor doesn't fade compared to some of the other color film techniques which you'll notice that the Eastman prints you know other, other types of films from this time period will eventually start fading to kind of a rosy dusty pink color but technicolor stays and the reason is instead of it just being one transfer of color it requires the cyan magenta and uh yellow yellow to all be transferred one at a time through a contraption that is more than 200 feet long and the film is, is on a belt, and each layer of color is pressed on top of a black and white image. It, it has a little bit of that Christmas from the black and white. You'll notice that Technicolor films, including this one, are not as crisp and clear as black and white films. And it's because of these three layers of color that are all pressed on top. You know, they get pretty close, but not 100%. But still, because Technicolor film lasts so long... It's actually a really great reference point for people who go to restore the films after the fact and are able to get the color to match so that what we are seeing in this digital remastering is what people would have seen in the theater, which I think is pretty fucking cool.
2: It is, except for then modern TVs ruin it by like having all sorts of filters on them, but that's a topic for another show. (laughs)
3: Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat food is just the center of everything in this world you know let's face it every every family get together every celebration every sad event it has food so i selected the godfather pasta sauce it's also known as sunday gravy it was created using like the cheapest cuts of meat because you know immigrants when they first came over they had nothing So they would buy from the market. They would use up all they had. And then like Sunday, they could use what was left over, make it into the gravy. And before you know it, like you you can feed 20 people, which this was actually um, a dish that uh, Mike was taught in The Godfather so that, you know, he's like, you never know when you're going to have to feed 20 people. Here's what you do. So I found this on dianadishes.worldpress.com if you want to find the uh, recipe yourself, but the ingredients. So it takes olive oil, cloves of garlic, of course. I mean, nowadays, cans of tomato, um, Italian sausages, grilled and sliced, meatballs, use your favorite recipe, sugar and wine. You, You throw everything together, you boil it up, you let it cook on low for a very long time. You know, especially when you're making the Sunday gravy. It's literally designed for Mama, grandma gets up, they start everything going while everybody's getting ready for church. And they just cook it on low all day while they're at church. And then the family comes home, has their Sunday dinner, and there's enough for everybody. But I will spare you all of the details on how to cook it and things like that. Um, but just go to Diana Dishes at WordPress.com. And then also I uh, I found this um Recipe from an article, it was like top six godfather movie recipes. That's at chefsmandala.com. So, uh, it was a pretty interesting article. I was a little nervous about what to pick because I wasn't sure what you guys picked last week. I couldn't make it, I wasn't feeling well. So, enjoy. And uh, if you end up fixing that for your family, write us and let us know. I'll just make a note it also works great in a crock pot. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: D- just in, in modern times, I don't feel great about leaving my gas oven on all day while I'm out and about, but right. Crock pot, sure thing.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm from the Midwest. Crock pots are like, you know, they're, they're a religious icon out here. So.
2: <laughs> okay. I don't think we can talk about pasta sauce without talking about Italia Coppola, Francis's mother. She was known for her cooking. She published a cookbook called Mama Coppola's pasta book and uh, she was known as Mamarella and uh, you can actually buy what is supposedly her recipe pasta sauce from, I think it's called the familycoppola.com, which also sells Francis's wine and stuff like that. So couldn't let that go without mentioning that because Italia Coppola actually appears in this film, and we'll talk about that when we get to that scene.
3: I also wanted to mention that in The Godfather, they used Coppola's family recipe for the Sunday gravy.
2: Awesome. So it opens in Sicily around the turn of the century. I don't remember the exact year. 1902 or something like that? 1901. Mm -hmm. Basically, there's a funeral. This guy has been killed and all that's left is the wife and two sons and one of the sons swears revenge and he disappears into the hills and like during the funeral procession is actually shot and killed also, leaving just the mom and the youngest son, Vito. She then goes to this Sicilian boss to plead the case that he let her youngest son live.
1: They had to reshoot this scene because they initially shot it where all the guys had zippers on their pants and then somebody like an extra musician who happened to be around pointed out that the zipper wasn't invented until like 1913 so then they reshot this whole segment that set in in the early early 1900s uh with everybody with button flies instead which it's you know, just kind of amusing thinking about that, and then of course there are these questions of why was he looking at their zippers anyway, but
3: <laughs> that's for another podcast. <laughs> okay, yeah, was Don so, Chichi, or uh, yeah, Chichi, I think yeah. is how it was pronounced.
2: He ends up killing the mother, and they try to kill little Vito, but he like escapes. Then um eventually uh, makes his way to America.
1: It's a it's a pretty big jump, actually. I mean, from from when he's in Ellis Island. I mean, just like so adorable, you know, dropping off his his suitcase there in the room by himself, but then quickly jumps 16 years into the future to 1917 when Vito's already married, has a kid. There are so many moments in the film where we go from Michael's world to Vito standing next to a crib with a screaming child <laughs> like it's always like that seems to be the preferred you know like hey let's remind you like which news storyline we're going to oh there's a crying baby oh now we know we're with Vito. <laughs> but
2: yeah, yeah and that was that was a big <laughs> criticism of this film at the time it came out was that it jumps around in time too much i think modern audiences is not a problem at all because we're used to it by now But at that time...
1: (laughs) And supposedly the first cut of the film had more jumping. And they did tidy it up before releasing it to theaters. Because there was, like, three weeks in advance, there was some bad criticism. And I don't know how substantial the changes were, but they did take another look at it.
2: Speaking of Young, so Young Vito, which originally was supposed to be played by Marlon Brando. I don't know how they would have done that. But instead us saw Mean Streets and saw De Niro and wanted to cast him. And man, was De Niro ever that young? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, watching this, oh my God. So we get De Niro and Pacino, both in sort of their breakout role, kind of. Um, both had sort of broke out the year before. Although they're never in a scene together. In fact, it won't be until heat
1: and even then it's only like one scene. I mean, what's remarkable is I think they've been in four major pictures together. this one where they have no scenes in common. Heat where they just have really that that one you know epic meeting uh, in the film. And then um, the Irishman. the Irishman, but there's another one in between uh, righteous something where they had multiple scenes together. So, but
2: I don't remember what that was, but okay, yeah,
1: yeah. But it is interesting thinking of them as being performers that actually work best as foils for each other in some way. That well, they're both
2: like New York Italian, like method actors. It's hard to imagine that there'd be 20 years after this film before they had they shared screen in one scene together, you know? Yeah, so Vito is basically working in a grocery store. And he loses his job because the local extortionist, known as the Black Hand, wants his nephew to have a job. And so the grocer has to let him go, which Vito totally understands the reason for it. One day, his next-door neighbor, who is part of this criminal underworld, throws through his window a bag of guns... (laughs) <laughs> and tells him to, like, watch it for him. He'll he'll pick it back up in a week. And this starts his association with this guy because he keeps it. He doesn't say a word. He claims he didn't even look at it because it's none of his business, although he did. And uh, he starts doing minor crimes with this guy. Like, the guy pays him back by, like, they rob uh, a uh, Oriental rug, you know. Um, like, for him. Hey, would
3: your wife like a rug? Okay, well, help me steal it. <laughs> That's awesome.
2: Which I assume there was another reason they chose that particular house, and that like they were sending a message. But as long as they're stealing a rug, you may as well, you know, get a rug out of the deal.
1: I want to point out this the scene in the theater. Supposedly that play that they're watching was written by Coppola's grandfather or something like that. But what I love is the moment. When the black hand stands up in front of everybody, and his buddy at the time is like down in front <laughs> or something like that, and then you see this guy just like slowly turn, and I love what this film does, showing the imprint basically the model that Vito tries to build himself off of is is this character who has gravitas, has his presence, is, is larger than life. And between even just that little moment in the theater and then the altercation he witnesses backstage where, you know, the guy is both this slow and imposing figure who just has to look at somebody and then they shut up, but then someone who isn't afraid of using violence themselves. That combination, I think they do a great job of setting up where Vito models himself after.
2: Well, to a degree he models himself after, but I think he also to a degree takes the Black Hand as the way not to do things. Because yes. everybody hates the Black Hand and the Black Hand puts a squeeze to him and his two buddies and they're doing minor crimes and wants a cut of it. You know, he wants to wet his beak with some, some of their money, you know, and take a cut. And Vito doesn't want to go along with it. So he convinces the other two guys to just give him part of the money. And then he actually assassinates the Black Hand. But after he assassinates the Black Hand, nobody's being extorted from anymore. So everybody just gives him stuff. They're like, oh, thank you. Here's this. Here's that. <laughs> you know, and he's like, everybody loves him in the neighborhood. He grows in power that way, being like respected in the neighborhood because he's got that off the old Don that was keeping everybody down. And now it starts out with them just giving him stuff for free like here take some extra groceries here oh because it's much less than paying an extortion fee and so suddenly he reaches this point where like people come to him with their problems like i'm being evicted uh help me out here you know and stuff like that
3: i'm always interested in saints so whenever a saint is brought up um you know especially in a situation like this i always try to look up and see you know well what's what's the story behind this patron saint like why are they relative relevant to this movie uh you know when they had the feast of san rocco and uh Vito kills the black hand right after he you know donates okay. a dollar yeah, to the yeah. icon and yep. and whatever and then goes to his apartment and whatnot but actually san rocco was a 14th century pilgrim during the black plague in Northern Italy. And he was known for nursing people that had the black plague back to health, but he did eventually die from the black plague, but he's like a patron saint of immigrants and plagues and major illnesses and pandemics and things like that. So I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, especially since we're all just coming out of a pandemic.
1: (laughs) I do like how they start off Michael's timeline with His son's first confirmation, another celebration, just like the wedding that kicks off the original film, sort of establishing, as you mentioned last time, it's an occasion for the whole family, for the whole organization to gather in plain sight with senators there. Everybody knows that this is happening. Everyone knows there's wheeling and dealing in the back room. And even his own sister has to get in line and wait her turn. I did like the parallel there, starting off his story
3: yes you know speaking of the flipping back and forth from the timeline when that party was going on so many things happened when they were flipping back to Vito's timeline and i was like oh oh okay the party's still going it's like oh my (laughs) gosh the party is still going um okay and then you know flips back again and i'm like man, these people know how to party because this is still going on here. Like, you know, and honestly- 20 years I, later. I know, 20 <laughs> years later, you know, there's, <laughs> the, the party is still going on. And, uh, you know, and, and for a minute there, because it had been a while since I had seen Godfather 2 when I was watching this, I was like, I was like, is this part of one of his casinos? And then it took me and I'm like, oh my God, this is his property. He has like this whole elaborate space to have just family get-togethers
2: and whatever. Their compound is on Lake Tahoe. I think this is a great example of what Gary Oldman said, because a lesser director would have been like, okay, let's do the party scene. And then you'd have this really long party scene, but Coppola breaks up the party scene by cutting back and forth to the old times so that you don't get bored of just one long party scene, which if you edit it all together, you'd be like, okay, enough with this party already, but there's so much stuff that had to get done at that party, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah. Can I kind of lead into Senator Geary's story? Yeah. Yes.
2: Senator Pat Geary. By the way, What's really interesting is Pat is named Pat, and his wife is named Pat, <laughs> <laughs> like Patricia. So I think yeah. this is my grandma went by Pat. <laughs> I th- they're both Pat. So I think this is a reference to Jack and Jackie, Jack Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy. Oh,
3: that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, yeah. his story arc is quite interesting. Because, you know, at the party, he's like, yeah, we'll deal with you. But I don't ever want to hear from you ever again until he wakes up to a dead hooker in his hotel room. And then he's like, well, I need your help. And then his total attitude towards them changed. Then he was basically an ally because they helped him clean up a gnarly mess that he couldn't remember what happened.
2: In real life, what supposedly happened is the senator had gambling debts. That the mafia had over him and they like erased his gambling debts for him and stuff like that. And that's why he was indebted to the mob. That would not be as dramatic on screen as a dead hooker. So, like, but <laughs> you're not what wrong. The film, what the film doesn't <laughs> clarify is whether or not he actually even killed the hooker. Like, he may have been totally set up. He has no memory of this thing. Like, he wakes up, you know, so they may have just killed it. It's a brothel they own, right? And they know that she has no family, you know, so they may have just chosen her that they're going to kill her and leave him in the room and like, and that wasn't his first encounter
3: with her either so i mean it's very likely that they could have used her because he may have been attached to her at this point if he had used her more than one time you know hired her more than one time to kind of really get to him and be like you don't you don't fuck with us okay you just don't like keep your side of the street clean with us or or you will find out what you're dealing with. And he found out. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I mean,
1: I assumed they were in on it just, and maybe it was, you know, assuming the parallel would be with the first film with the horse's head that, mm -hmm. you know, just sort of a, oh, you you think that you don't have to deal with us? You think that you don't have to play by our rules? Okay, well, we're going to show you. (laughs) We're going to show you what we can do. But that the Senator, I guess, still believes that he's the one with the power and is even more in denial and and you know, doesn't see their hand in it. That was my interpretation. but yeah, could it have, was like could have just it, been an accident.
2: yeah. it <laughs> was
3: like they used the situation to to like just reconfirm how under their thumb he really was. you know. and i have I have to veer off a little bit because I missed last I, I missed the last episode due to illness the horse head scene traumatized me when I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> I, I, my dad was watching the Godfather open his bedroom on TV and I must've been about seven years old. And I went upstairs and he was watching that movie. And I happened to walk in right at the horse head scene. And I kid you not, I had nightmares about that for probably two weeks after that. And it took me, probably at least a decade to finally be able to sit down and watch it. Cause eventually I dated some stupid guy that had fun to him was only watching like mob movies or horror movies. And that was like all he did, which that's why it didn't last. I need more of that in my more other things in my life besides that there's yes. more to life than getting high and watching movies all the time, guys. I'm I'm sorry to break it to you, but there really is more than that. Anyway, I wanted to point <laughs> that out and, um,
2: I was traumatized by Jaws because I was allowed to watch Jaws, but somehow not allowed to watch The Godfather. So you figure <laughs> that out. Um, but My parents had some weird rules too. We need to talk about what sets off the major conflict in this film, which is that there is a capo from the Corleone mob named Frank Pentangeli. And he comes to Michael and he wants his help because... The Rosato brothers, who we've never heard of before at this point, are like moving in on his territory. They work for Hyman Roth, the Jewish mob boss based in Florida. Guy that's essentially based off of Meyer Lansky is the the real guy that he's based off of. And he wants help. Don Corleone refuses to involve himself in this conflict, happening to one of his own capos because he has something big going down with Hyman Roth, which we don't know what that is yet. Frank Pentangeli leaves this meeting very unhappy because he's old school. He, he's older than Michael. He's a mustache peep, which I think he literally has a mustache in this. Um, he does. <laughs> he, he's the only one that has a mustache except for Fredo, who has a mustache, which is one more way in which Fredo is not like a typical mafioso. And I think it was a deliberate choice to make him stand out. We'll get to Fredo's issues in a second here. The reason for this, it turns out, is that Michael and Roth are planning this big move to make a lot more money in Havana, you know, where, like, the Cuban dictator is basically, like, it's, like, open season and, like, taking bribes from all the big corporations in the U.S. and and organized crime. He just tells Pentangeli to cool it so that He can arrange this deal. And he and Roth head off to Cuba. The gangster Hyman Roth, who's the head of the Jewish mob, is played by Lee Strasberg, the great acting teacher. And what's really interesting, I thought, was that he got a Golden Globe nomination. And I think he won the award for Best Newcomer. (laughs) despite the fact that he taught all these people how to act he taught Pacino how to act he taught De Niro he taught all these people the method acting he taught Brando I think but he had been in almost no films like he had made a couple of brief appearances uncredited in films in like the 30s and 40s or something and that was it because he was a theater actor this is really his first major role in a film like toward the end of his life he originally didn't want to do it, I think, because they had originally offered the part to his enemy, Ilya Kazan. And, okay. Uh, but Francis Ford Coppola's father, a composer, Carmine, they had like a long talk together. And after like a 45-minute talk or something, he agreed to do it. I have never been able to find out what kind of offer they made him, an offer he couldn't refuse. But Obviously,
3: did. it was an offer he couldn't refuse. Did you notice that De Niro, he did get that line in the movie? Yes. When he went to go kill the Black Hand, he's like, I'm about to give him an offer. He can't refuse.
2: <laughs> yes. Speaking of lines like that, an offer you can't refuse is like really well known from the one. The the line from this that is so well known that people often go back and misattribute it to older sources like Machiavelli or Sun Tzu or whatever, but actually comes from this film is the line keep your friends close and your enemies closer. closer. Yep. That comes from this film. And uh, I myself thought it was like a much older quote, but no, in fact, this is the uh, The, uh, original original source of of that that, that that quote. quote. Meanwhile, back in New York, what we think, because it's not clarified for a long time, what we think is Michael's own guys try to off- Pantangeli in a bar. They are interrupted by the police and there's a big shootout.
3: There was the pivotal thing too, when he told him he needed to try to work things out with the brothers, then his house was shot up and which was which would also mark the downfall of Michael's marriage. That was the beginning of the end, among other things, but that was the beginning of the end of his marriage. Just before the scene where the house is shot up, Kay and Michael have a conversation about the legitimacy of Michael's business. And she said, you told me that in five years the business would be fully legitimate and it's been seven years now. And then right after that happened, (laughs) their house was shot
2: up. (laughs) He goes to bed and his wife asks why the drapes are open. And in that split second, he realizes they must have been open for a reason. And he grabs her, they hit the floor. And there's an attempt at his assassination. This is the first attempt at his assassination in this film. And we don't get to who's behind it, but we do know that he believes it has to be someone on the inside of his family that left these drapes open. There has to be a traitor in their midst.
3: That was the beginning of the end of their marriage. She was done with the bullshit. She was done with the violence. I'm pretty sure done with the culture. I mean, let's face it, it was very sexist. Later down the road, she ends up getting pregnant again. Michael is told that it was a miscarriage. And then later on, she goes to him and she goes, it wasn't a miscarriage. I had a fucking abortion. I am not going to have another child and bring another child into your world. I'm And I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done.
2: Originally, as written, it was supposed to be a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. But Diane Keaton, who yes. plays K came up with the idea that it would be better if it was an abortion. And Coppola liked that twist that she came up with so much that they wrote that scene in for her. That wasn't originally part of the script.
3: I wasn't aware of that, but that was a smart move because that was more of a jab at Michael. And to be honest, I'm surprised she wasn't killed for it
2: you know, but instead he just took her kids
3: away and gave her just like visitation with them instead of split custody or whatever.
2: I was expecting her to get killed so that he could get remarried, you know, have her out of the way. You know, you can't get divorced in Catholicism at the time, right? Right,
3: right. You you know, you can get an annulment, but even that was kind of frowned upon.
2: So speaking of people getting killed, another person I kept expecting to get killed was Fredo. Yeah, You know who didn't suspect that he was the guy behind all this, right? He was so smarmy, you know, that you kind of thought. I
3: honestly didn't think he had that much power. I bought it when I thought it, you know, it was Hyman. But then when it was Fredo, I was like, "The fuck? Are we serious?" Well, he had enough pull to get his brother
2: killed. Well, it was Hyman. It was Hyman's guys, but okay, they but he he was just the guy on the inside that that like you know, let them in, you know? Okay. So he thought that, he claimed that he thought it was just going to be a discussion. And Fredo is kind of stupid. So maybe he thought that they were only there to talk business, but whatever the case is, he's family and minor spoiler here, spoiler alert. He does get killed, but Michael had ordered that he not be killed at any time while their mother was still alive. So as soon as
3: mom was gone, he was gone.
2: But for the longest time, I expected them to kill him and they didn't, which is another example, just like with Kay, where if you're part of the family, you got a lot longer rope before they kill you than if yeah, you're Yeah, they not. give you
3: a, a lot more grace if you're family.
2: We said that Fredo was safe as long as their mother was alive. Right. So the actress that played Carmela Corleone, which was Morgana King, Morgana King refused to be in a coffin for this scene. So they had (laughs) a body doubler and they body doubled her with Italia Coppola. So that was Francis Ford Coppola's mother that was in the coffin in the scene. Oh, wow. And of course, um, now that she has passed away, then now Fredo is no longer safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, um, you know, Hyman did order that hit on Pentangelo that failed. Actually, Pentangelo survived Which is a big surprise when he shows up At the Kefauver Commission later We'll get to that mm-hmm. in a second But rather than giving his part of the investment Which is $2 million when they're in Havana He calls back to the States And has Fredo fly in with it in the suitcase But he, do- he doesn't turn it over To Hyman And the reason is He suspects Hyman is the one That put a hit on Pentangelo And the other reason is he sees Rebels in the street and he's not so sure that Batista is going to be in power too much longer, which in fact we find out is the truth, you know? Right. So for those two reasons, he holds off on giving the money. But when he tells Hyman this, he said, don't ask me who did the hit business is business. And I had a friend who grew up, did all this stuff with Mo green. And like when he was hit, I didn't ask any questions. Now, Mo green is sort of the fictional representation of Bugsy Siegel, who in the first Godfather film was killed by the Corleone family, supposedly. And in real life is an unsolved murder, but we think that the Italian mafia killed him.
1: Okay. One of the things I enjoy about this film is the sense of there being this spider web that is very carefully knit together. And if you tug on any one string, it affects everything else. And Pantanjali is a character like this. His problem seems like a pretty Mickey Mouse problem. And he's a pretty low-level kind of bumbling dude. And so it's what I like about this film and, and the previous film is that they plant the seed of there's this one small thing that is going to somehow fuck up the whole spider web. <laughs> that if Michael makes the wrong decision about how to deal with it or... Doesn't see how this is connected to other things, then it has the potential to really get out of control. I really like that structure and the sense of once you tug on that string and you see the ripple effects. That's where he becomes suspicious and is trying to figure out. Okay, well, if I pull this over here, what's that going to affect somewhere else? That's going to help me find the rat.
2: I want to skip ahead to what is obviously the Keep Offer Committee, which we talked about last time. Pentangley is testifying at the kefauver committee and he's turned state's evidence against them and he's sitting with a bunch of guys that are like the fbi guys did you see who is sitting right behind him no the actor he's fbi guy number one harry dean stanton what
3: <laughs> no way i saw
2: it and i paused and i'm like wait that's harry dean stanton and i looked it up and sure enough harry dean stanton
1: that's hysterical yeah, that's that scene was really interesting. I understand why this arc is in the film from reading about it, that part of the idea behind the story was that they were showing the rise of Vito and the fall of Michael, or the slipping of Michael. The Senate committee hearing is definitely part of that threat of, he's made some bad choices Made some bad enemies and now it's gonna come up and and he's he's gonna get his due here. But I have to say, like the tone of these scenes really felt out of step with the rest of the movie in in a way that I couldn't tell if I liked it because it just meant it meant there was less of the same, or whether it felt like Whenever we shifted into these committee hearings, we were watching a completely different film. And I had to readjust my sense of the stakes and what was going on because no one was about to get murdered in those scenes. So just trying to, like, recalibrate of like, OK, where's the tension? What am I afraid is going to happen here?
2: Yeah, I think I mean, the fear is that they're going to take down the mob, that the the whole crime family is going to go to jail, right? this is a capo. They didn't have anyone that high in the organization that could actually turn on Michael. Like we said, he had been in the organization since before Michael was born, so he knew everything. If it weren't for the fact that they they went and they found his brother in Sicily and brought him into the trial, and that alone was enough to get him to recant his testimony. Throughout this whole film, it's michael's story and flashing back to Vito's story in the early half of the 20th century and then to michael's story in the mid-20th century and then back and forth and back and forth until the very end we get a flashback to michael earlier in his life it's actually pearl harbor day and michael has decided to enlist in the marines and that ties it back to the first film and Mm -hmm. um I had always thought that this was about the uh, end of the Corleone saga. And in fact, there's a final scene where they only shot half of it because they ran out of light. Um, They were using natural light and it was they shot Pacino's half and he was listening as his 18 year old. Son says he's not going to follow In his father's footsteps And then he flashes back to this memory Where he's like saying He's not going to follow in Vito's footsteps You know he's going to go to the army He's going to be a lawyer and all this He has his own dreams And his own son is now 18 years old And telling him that But that doesn't actually happen in this film Because they ran out of light So they never shot that other part The 18 year old's part So it just ends with him like Looking at the lake And this flashback And I think it's actually better this way you know that that they didn't have that then it's like left a little more up in the air especially since what we'll find out later is there's a godfather part three where it allows us to go even further into the story
3: right and i also feel like it added to the gravity of
2: fredo's death
3: because i don't really feel like michael wanted to do it but he felt like he had to because fredo betrayed him
2: yeah, and you can't let somebody do that. If you're the godfather, you can't because then everybody thinks you're weak and stuff like that. So he has right. he has to die. Fredo has to die, you know. Right. I think that's about it for this show. Of course, like and subscribe and what I want you guys to do do it right now. Go rate and review us. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie.
1: This is Johanna.
2: Signing off.
3: There's yes. more to life than getting high and watching movies all the time, guys. I'm, I'm sorry to break it to you, but there really is more than that.